Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Deb Roberts and I am the host for season two of the Mind Medicine Australia's podcast. Before we begin with this week's guest, a reminder that Mind Medicine Australia's focus is on the development and the use of evidence-based psychedelic-assisted therapies within regulated healthcare systems. We do not, though, encourage the use of psychedelic medicines outside of this context, and we do not support the use of these substances in any way that is unlawful. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only. None of the content herein constitutes medical advice. Guests' views are their own and do not represent the views of Mind Medicine Australia, and individuals need to discuss their individual healthcare needs with their healthcare providers. Thank you for listening. Um, well, welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia um, podcast season two, Vanessa. It sounds like I'm doing like a Netflix series, but um, I wanted to just welcome you to the program. Um, we are actually recording on um, the day that is actually just happens to be Global um, or World Mental Health Day. And I thought it was actually um, a really nice opportunity. I don't think either of us necessarily knew that that was going to be the date that we spoke. But today um, uh, is commemorating World Mental Health Day. And I think that, um, you know, mental health affects us so differently. But I thought that just for maybe 30 seconds before we start, I've been doing this um, for my um, benefit, just as perhaps with you as well. But just to kind of ground for a moment, I know that when I come into these conversations um uh, I'm off I'm in my head uh, a lot um and that's part of my experience but I'm just putting my feet on the ground and if anyone's listening to this as well it's just an opportunity as long as you're not running or driving to just maybe um connect with whatever's touching the floor or the ground um and I guess in that kind of solid foundation um perhaps allowing the richness of um a conversation between um, the two of us. So um, welcome to the program. Thank you. A pleasure to. <laughs> and you're on the move. Be here. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm. <laughs> now Is... I'm grounded. <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. It's funny, though. Um, and most people will be listening to this, not necessarily seeing the video, but um you know, it's so interesting how sometimes, and it reminded me of the of kind of a walking meditation of movement. So um, anyway, it's nice to see you um, seated now. I hope that um, this conversation just provides a sense of, um, I guess, solidarity um, about, uh, I guess, hope um, around mental health. So I want to, um, if it's okay, uh, just allow you to give a bit of background um, about yourself, the context of maybe how you got involved with mind medicine um, eventually, but I guess more, uh, yeah, just whatever feels right to kind of connect with um, today in talking about your own, if you're happy to, your own um, experience um, around mental health for yourself. Um, and of course, I know the family and your networks, et cetera. So you can start wherever, and then I will ask a few questions. Okay. Uh, so 
I lost my husband, my beautiful husband, Franco, two and a half years ago to suicide. Uh, I was married to him for 30 years. And um, up until three years ago, before he died, he was wonderful. Everything was great. You know, we lived life uh, to the best that you could, really. We travelled a lot and had a wonderful life together and we ended up having a beautiful daughter together. And one day he woke up and said to me something felt terribly wrong with him and he'd never been sick, I'd never gone to the doctors. And from that moment on, life changed for both of us and... He was hospitalised four weeks after he was diagnosed with a severe form of clinical depression. We don't know why his brain decided to suddenly, you know, the chemistry in his brain just um, stopped working. You know, all those feelings that you normally get, they all just, yeah, they, they disappeared. We have no, we we don't know still to this day exactly why it happened to him. Uh, he had sustained a few concussion industry, uh, uh, concussion injuries in his life and there has been discussion around perhaps that was a cause for why he went into this severe form of depression. Uh, I was very fortunate to be at home full-time as a mother. I retired when I'd had my daughter later in life. And so I took care of Franco full-time for three years and during that time I we saw many different professors. I had been an accountant once so I was used to documenting everything. So I got into a habit of documenting Frank's journey uh, shortly after he got sick because I realised when you move from one psychiatrist to another, no history is shared between them. And so when you're taking medications, when someone's very ill, they don't remember what dosages they were on. They don't recall the names of the medications when you're so severely depressed. And so I felt the need to start recording um, daily what was going on with Franco. Uh, hence I created this massive spreadsheet, uh, which I condensed down, which we used last year when we took the his story, his journey to the TGA, uh, to show just what it's like for someone who's uh, resistant to antidepressants in all. He took 18, 19 antidepressants. And he had 96 electric shock therapies over the course of three years. Um, together with other forms of therapies, we had ketamine, we had other forms of... Um, and, yeah, like I was trying to find a solution and my husband kept alive because he felt that if someone was going to find a way to make him better, that I was going to be able to do it. So his ability to hold on to 
to have the strength to hold on because every day he wanted to die. Like most days I was on suicide watch with him and it was very hard for him to stay alive. He would talk to me every day about how he wanted, he couldn't see any reason to want to live because of the feelings he was having. Well, there was no feeling. Someone that's severely depressed doesn't feel anything. They don't feel any joy with anything. They don't feel sadness. They don't, they can't cry. They just can't, there's nothing. It's just an emptiness. I don't think any of us can really fully understand what that feeling's like unless we've been through it ourselves. But he certainly expressed what he was going through on a daily basis over the three years and often I had to lock him up in um, under the Mental Health Act because I felt he was too at risk at the time. So we had many visits to uh, mental hospitals, both private and public. So I got to see another side of humanity, like when you're inside mental hospitals, you really get to understand the struggles of people and their own journeys. And I was fortunate enough to meet many wonderful people who were who could share their journey with me. And um, I guess I came from a carer's point of view. I was trying to explain to some people how difficult it is being a carer. Uh, and at one point I needed to get help myself as the carer. Uh, I thought I was having a heart attack one day. Um, they rushed me to hospital and it just turned out, you know, just the pressure of looking after someone full time, just um, my my body just sort of shut down for a little while and said, you need to look after yourself. That was a bit of an eye-opener for me because I'd never sort of had mental health myself, but obviously the strain of everything that was going on was putting a lot of pressure on on my body. So, um, yeah, I had to learn to start helping myself uh, because we have a young daughter and I certainly didn't want to go down the same track as my husband. It, it, it's frightening to hear what someone's feeling every day and I don't wish that on anyone. Um, At the same time my husband was going through his mental illness, Uh, my mother was going through cancer and I remember my husband saying to my mother, you know, with cancer you still have your mind, you can fight it, you can find a solution, you can still feel things. But with this, there it is the worst possible thing you could ever want to go through. Like you don't wish this on anybody. And he kept saying, this is by far the worst thing. I wish I could, I had cancer rather than this because I, I would have my mind and my feelings there to be able to help myself through it. But when you're like this, you just don't have any desire for anything. Gosh, um, I want, there's so few um, words that could, can actually, um, I guess, 
express the gravity of what was going on and and that what you've just described, Vanessa. Um, there are so many elements, um, both in his own your Franco's um, his own um, experience and then what you were experiencing and where by I think most likely you know from emotional exhaustion literally there was nothing in the tank and then almost this you know it's it you know it it is this continuation it's not affecting one um one part of the family um you know obviously talking about your daughter as well it just um, the elements, the the many elements that you have described, um, I all I can, I guess I want to express to you in terms of the the strength and inner conviction of and your tenacity over that period of time. Obviously, you know you, you weren't a nurse, so to speak. It wasn't your professional. Um, you know, work, so to speak. I mean, an accountant, you know, is a far, <laughs> a nurse, but it certainly shows that, um, I say that in jest, but only in the sense of obviously being an accountant doesn't mean that we don't have the depth or capacity to be the carer. But, um, and I know you've spoken about Franco and uh, um, quite a bit in, with M Mind Medicine Australia and otherwise. Um, I also just to convey to you having um you know um, my sister who passed away in november i was telling you just before we started um ending her life um after um you know, you know I, m many of the things you described in terms of treatments both in antidepressant um, residential clinics um all the different modalities and at the very end um I was initiating the thought of psychedelics at the time. She didn't feel at that time it was, um, she couldn't kind of um, really uh, get her head around it from where the kind of legality was at the time in America. Um, but I suppose that aspect that you also spoke about, um, about the numbing, the numbing of feeling, um, there was a vacancy of feeling with her. Um, and I bring that up as well because, um, and I hadn't shared that with you, but you know, the reason my own background, um, having been in mental health clinics um, myself and being around, um, I had, you know, um, bilateral ECT, I had nine of them, but just a few things um, and admit, you know, numbers of antidepressants, then trying to go off drugs for a while. And that, I guess I just wanted to, I guess, just convey, I, I look and I'm looking at you and the strength um, uh, about even the talk, the communicating about it is, um, is really significant. And I wondered, uh, how because it seems as though he didn't do the psychedelic he didn't try psychedelics at the time correct that was part of the yeah. yes that's right yeah and so um in this conversation around um you know the modalities what keeps us sustaining um a sense of well-being uh i wonder what your thoughts are around um the psychedelic um assisted therapy um, now that the legislation has changed, some of the good work that you did has made a huge, you know, significant um, impact. 
Um, what are your thoughts around um, putting the psychedelic assisted therapy in practice? Look, you know, uh, the way I got involved with My Medicine Australia was that uh, 60 Minutes had done a program, uh, I'm thinking now maybe four years ago, on psychedelics. And through my little bit of investigating work, I managed to contact one of the guys that was being interviewed here in Australia. And I was desperately wanting to to find out where he was going to get his treatment because a year earlier I had heard Professor David Nutt being interviewed on the radio and I thought, oh, my God, this is the solution. This is what we need to be doing for Franco. We don't need to be giving him another round of bilateral ECT um, and in his case, each time he needed 24 of them to be able to make any change in his mind. And so I contacted this uh, this journalist and they he said, look, I, I'm sorry, I can't give you the therapist that I use, but what I can do is give you information about... My Medicine Australia and what they're trying to do here in Australia. So I contacted My Medicine Australia and I actually had Tanya call me because she heard my story about the desperation I had at that stage because really Franco was going to take his life if I could not find a solution. And I just I felt this was the solution for us because we had tried everything. I'm telling you, I saw every single leading professor in their field of expertise. Um, I'd never stopped. We'd see psychiatrists weekly. Uh, we'd see therapists and psychologists twice a week, you know, twice a week. He would have three times a week he would have exercise physiology on him so that I, you know, I was throwing everything, everything possible for those three years. And when I heard about the psychedelics and I I really felt this was, this was a, it made better sense to me after at that stage he'd had maybe 12 different antidepressants. And I thought this is what we need to do. But when I'd speak to different psychiatrists about it at that stage, they were a bit, they weren't um, okay about it. So I was finding a way to take him overseas. But it was too dangerous because Franco was suicidal and I couldn't chance that he would take his life when we were overseas. I didn't know how he would go on the plane. Um he didn't think it was going to work. He didn't think anything was going to work. But he always said to me, well, I'm only doing it for you, Vanessa. I'm going to try this. Whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. And so it was very hard for me each time when no antidepressant would work and another psychiatrist would say, look, the only thing we can do is another round of electric shock therapy and because he wasn't in any state to say yes to it, we had to go through the court system. 
you know, and when you're getting asked by these judges, you know, the tribunal, what do I think? And I said, well, I'm not happy. I'm not happy to give him another round of electric shock therapy, but you can't keep him locked away for the rest of his life. And I know that if he leaves this hospital, he's going to take his life. So if the only solution is the electric shock therapy, we'll go down that route again and again and again. So I was trying to get the psychedelic. I, I really I, I thought let's see if there's some sort of trial like we can do here in Australia. Um, Tanya had me contact Kate Fairman. She's a, a senator for the Greens. And she wrote a letter on my behalf to try and see if we could get some on compassionate grounds, something happening. Um, but, you know, my energy was getting, I was getting to the point, you know, where I was just so exhausted. So I didn't have as much energy as I would have had a year earlier to just fight it as much as possible and go to my local MPs, which is what Tanya was saying to me at the time I would have to do. But she was trying to help me as much as possible to to try and see if we could get some something on compassionate grounds. Um, I did think about going underground, but I don't know where to start. Like I'm just a, a mother in a, in a west suburb of Sydney who I don't know people that could get to to get me those sort of drugs. I wouldn't even know where to look. So, um, and my father was concerned for me that if I went down that track that I could end up legally, you know, in a bit of a mess and it wasn't the right thing to do for my daughter, you know, to be caught up in something illegal. But, I'm, you know, I was, des- I was desperate. So I, I was contemplating and I had my parents in the background saying you can't be doing this and I said well I don't know where to start anyway I don't know where to go and get these drugs from but um <clears throat> yeah I wish I had I think had had we been able to give it a go um I would have been able you know I would love to have given that a go I don't know if it would have worked for Franco I'm not saying it would but Certainly it was better than telling me there's no more antidepressants we can give him. We can't give him any more electric shock therapy and we can't lock him up. So I said, well, what am I supposed to do now? Like just wait until he takes his life, which is in the end is what he did. Um, I was always prepared for it. I knew that it was going to eventually happen. Vanessa, again, um, the um, the range and depth of um, things that you have just talked about, um, one being that somehow seems, um, for some reason it seems easier to touch on, but the system itself, you know, the health system, the desperation, um, the degree to which you um, took in all the different modalities. It sounds as though Franco absolutely though was um, also very dependent, obviously, and saying to you, so the the love, of course, but the 
internal pressure to um to do everything that you did having also the you know whether it be parents or people um you know kind of being cautious um the it reminds me as well my um sis, my sister but my brother-in-law so my sister's husband um in somewhat of a similar nature um having that spreadsheet um which my sister helped with in some respect um in terms of all the you know the different residential clinics or um and the you know I you know she at the end was on 12 different medications at the same time um which of course didn't save her because she ended her life anyway um and the um the, just of where the psychedelic space was at the time. And this is, you know, now we're talking globally. She's in America. And at the time, Colorado and um, Oregon were the, Oregon was going to be the first to make it legal. But she also, uh, similar to you in that, from that underground aspect, it, it wasn't accessible. It wasn't easily accessible. And you just spoke about that um, again. Um, I wonder whether from, this health system standpoint, you've talked about how a medical record might, um, you know, if that if, if information collected um, was able to more easily be um, transferred um, to different therapists, and perhaps not even just medical therapists, because like you said, ex exercise physiology, exercise and um, moving the body is such an integral component that can change, you know, obviously the the um, chemistry in the brain. Um, um, I say this with almost like this deep sigh as I'm feeling it in my chest and feeling in my abdomen of the kind of ten tense tension, both from a lived experience standpoint, but also looking at you directly from a carer's point of view. I I, I can't imagine um, the degree of pressure um, different from him. And I know you um, honor that, you know, having not had the mental, you know, uh, mental um, challenges initially um, that you didn't have, um, but over, over time you did. Um, is there aspects of the system now having now have it legal and that psychedelic assisted therapy is going to be provided for people with treatment resistant depression and PTSD to start with? Um, you know, you touched on the medical record aspect or how that could be. Is there th anything front of mind or heart um, that from a system point of view? you're now looking at um how to support carers better or any aspect i don't want to yeah uh, i don't want to put yeah. words in your yeah, mouth yeah. no no um look i i do plan to i i've um requested it, it has been asked of me if I would get on a body of suicide prevention uh, like as a lived experience person with lifeline Lifeline were definitely wonderful for for me uh, because they have a program for people like me who have suffered a loss to suicide because there's a lot of guilt that goes with it. Um, when you you hear those footsteps the last time, thinking they're going, they're about to go for a walk, and a few hours later you have the police at your door and. You know, that goes through my mind 
often, but the guilt is is not there. Like I, I did have it for a while, and certainly um, Lifeline were fantastic for that. Um, I I do feel there. I'm very passionate at the moment about trying to get the record keeping in place, and I do believe um, it's it's a lot for a carer to take on board full-time because I was full-time and, look, fortunately, um, years earlier I had taken out income protection insurance. So I was covered financially for all the expenses that were being incurred. I just threw any bit of money. But it's it saddens me because most people won't be in the situation I'm in where they can afford to pay for exercise physiologists, pay for psychiatrists, pay for, um, you know, any type of therapy that was being suggested, I was, I was doing, I was taking care, taking him to all of them, forcing him to go very often um, to do it because, you know, every day it's, it's hard for them to, to want to do anything. Like they just, they don't have it, they just want to, they just want to end. They just want to end the pain. And look, there was one time. I, you know, I was with my husband thirty years. I loved him. We had a wonderful, loving relationship. We. He was a wonderful father, a wonderful husband. And there was a point where I remember ringing Lifeline because the day came when the therapist told me that she needed to prepare me for Franco taking his life, that, you know, if we couldn't, it was going to happen at some stage. She says it's it's just too difficult to hold on. He's already held on for two years to hold on any further. So at that point I actually felt like how can I help him end this pain? I I I I had that going that one day in the park when I sat there and I thought, I can't watch him going through this pain for one more moment. I know I have my daughter, but as a wife and a lover, you know, when you love someone, you don't, you wish there was euthanasia. You you really do at this point in time because when the system that is currently in play cannot fix them and Professors are saying there's nothing more we can do. You just you think to yourself, well, how can I help them end this pain? Uh, and you know, there was that moment, and thankfully, I was able to ring Lifeline, and they, you know, just talking about it, I realised, like, you know, that that wasn't going to be the solution, um, because I have a daughter, and all I want is for her to have her father living, whether he be alive or not, like I wanted him to be alive no matter what for my daughter's sake, but there's no place where you can lock someone up full time. So the system, certainly having those spreadsheets that I had, which itemised all his medications and his treatments, every time I saw a new psychiatrist, they commended me on, on it um, and said that this we just don't see this sort of information. And I'm thinking, well, of course not, when you don't have someone full-time looking after the person. 
my husband can't record everything. Like a lot often these medications make you so sick. Um, they don't talk about all the side effects that you have, like Parkinsonian. He was tripping over all the time. He was just he couldn't remember things. A lot of those antidepressants bring a lot of bad side effects, and they talk about the side effects of psychedelics. Well, I'm sorry, but when you take some of these antidepressants, they can make you very sick, and I recorded all of that. And to see my husband behave like an 80-year-old because he's just taken an antidepressant that makes him feel like it's aged him, his whole body language changes, he can't function, he can't talk properly, and they're telling me, well, we just have to wait a few weeks and see if this one's going to work. And I'm thinking, I'm watching... Franco turned into this man, um, he's consciously aware of what's going on in his body and yet he can't even walk down the street because he's going to fall over. And they're telling, psychiatrists are telling me, well, we just have to check, we just need to tick this off because it, it may work in two or three weeks' time. I said, wow, that's, it really disgusted me to think uh, that's what people have to go through when they're trying an antidepressant. You know, some of these stronger antidepressants, that's the problem. You you try your first one, you try your second one, the third one, it starts getting a little bit stronger and a little bit different. And what about the SSRIs? My psychologist, I am sure actually the first ever escitalopram, which is the Go to medication from every GP. They put you straight on that. They don't even know you. They put you straight on that. Two days later, Franco felt like suiciding. And I thought, wow, we don't have any support system in place. They've just given him an antidepressant. He's come home and he feels like he wants to die two days after taking it. It really shocked me into thinking how can GPs hand out these medications without making sure that you've got support and telling you, advising you that you may actually have these side effects. Things may actually feel worse for you before they start to feel better. Where's the support? Where's the doctor telling you, look, before I give you this medication, you may feel like this. I need to make sure that you've got support around you for that period of time. That is a big problem in the system. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going home, taking these drugs, not having anyone at home to check in on them because they don't even want to talk about the fact that they're taking an antidepressant and then suddenly taking their life. And nobody, you know, I've met people through support groups who don't understand why the person took their life. They had no signs there to say anything. And I'm wondering, you know, sometimes I wonder whether some of these antidepressants actually make you, push you into a situation that makes you feel a lot worse because I saw it firsthand with my husband two days after he started to take his first antidepressant. 
he talked to me about how bad he actually felt. And I thought, wow, this is scary. I and I didn't, I didn't put it all together. I didn't sort of link it until because I was inexperienced. I didn't have any idea what antidepressants can do to you. I just thought you take the drug and it makes you feel better. You know, for any normal average person, that's what you think. But over three years, I learned that, wow, you know, that first ever episode where Franco felt not well after taking the antidepressant, I'm thinking it's his illness getting worse, but it could well have been the antidepressant that he was taking threw him into that. Well, and as um, I think that um, the use of pharmaceutical drugs, um, you know, you're showing by how you just described that, that there are many variables, including not um, including them not working and numbers of different combinations of medicines not working. Obviously, I have that experience through um, my through my sister as well. Um, the opportunity of um, the integration aspect of psychedelics is, you know, is a big aspect. And one of the things when you said you were looking for a solution um, in the conversation we're having, I think it's really important that it, it, there isn't necessarily a magic bullet in terms of the psychedelic drugs either. You know, they don't necessarily... Um, it doesn't mean that everything just is a bed of roses. Um, and part of the preparation for psychedelic assisted therapy is also in that, so that we don't necessarily um, assume that it's going to be a magic bullet. Um, I wonder for you um, as, as um, a carer, um, and a family member now having um, experienced what you have, um, what are is what are things at the moment that keep you connected now? Are you like now? It's you said three years ago. Was it three years ago? Yes. Now? Uh, right. No, two years ago. Two years ago. Two years ago, and I know you were dealing with it for three years with him. Correct. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes. So, and now for yourself in terms of feeling connected, being supported um, from a well-being point of view, what are, I think you're also going even soon now today to um, an appointment of some kind, but what are you, what is keeping you afloat um, in terms of mental well-being? We know that physical well-being is part of that as well. Um, any kind of go-to specific things that are um, that have sustained your own well-being um, post losing a family member to suicide? Look, I think um, support groups can be wonderful. Um, certainly Lifeline have wonderful um, support systems in place for people like myself. They have closed groups. They have one-on-one -on -one sessions, uh, which I did a lot of at the start. Um, I was going weekly there for two months and then I did another closed group that was weekly um, for another eight weeks. And um, 
You know, I practice gratitude every day. I'm very grateful to have my mind in a healthy space. And I I want to try, I, I went through this journey and I'm very passionate right now about youth because I've got a young daughter that's going through teenage life. She's lost her father to suicide. The statistics on children who have lost a parent to suicide is a bit frightening um, for them taking their own life as well. So I'm very, um, I want to try and get the psychedelics up and running should my daughter, for whatever reason, um, experience what her father experienced. I don't know if it's a genet- something genetic in him. So I'm there, it's, uh, that's why I did what I did with My Medicine Australia in sharing Franco's journey because I feel there's a need for another option out there. Uh, when everything else is failing, we need to be able to look at other solutions. Uh, and I just feel like giving, sharing what happened to me because I'm in a good headspace um, helps, it does help me even further. Like I, I don't want Franco's journey to just, I, I'd like to think that all those um, years of experience of being in, in and out of different hospitals and seeing seeing what I saw um, because I was there most days all day um, as a sound-minded person and talking to a lot of different patients, uh, it really opened me up to the, you know, young people and what their struggles are. And I'm, so, and I, I, I know for my husband, he had life experience behind him, but a lot of these young people don't, and so they may feel like this is what life's about, and I, I just can't deal with it. Whereas I think because my husband was a bit older. He knew how life had been so wonderful for him and he just wanted to go back to where life had been good, whereas some young young people don't have that life experience behind them. So they feel, well, this is what life is going to, this is what life holds for me going forward. And, um, you know, I, I, I really feel I want to do something for young young people that are struggling and I'm hoping that eventually we could go to the doctors and they can give you the option of going to see a therapist and trying psycho, you know, something like psychedelic therapy, which is hard, like it, it doesn't have the side effects that a lot of these antidepressants do on a lot of people. I'm not, you know, antidepressants can be, I've got friends on antidepressants and they're, you know, they're happy. Life is good for them. And I think great, but not, it doesn't work for everybody. And it'd be nice to have another option out there. And I I think talking about it helps me know that Frank's journey and the fact that he gave me the ability to understand what he was going what was going on in his mind because he spoke about it every day to me. Um, at times I had to um, limit how much he was allowed to tell me. Um, because I, I just couldn't bear listening to it all day. Like it's, it's depressing. <laughs> you know, when Australians say it's depressing, well, it, 
it puts you down. Like, and you just, I can't listen to that every day. And so I, I try to tell people, you know, I met people in hospital whose partners had eventually request, you know, separated because they couldn't cope with it. They've got young families. And, you know, I was trying to explain to these, uh, to patients, you know, people out there that it is hard being a carer. It is not easy. And if you're holding down a job and you've got children and you're trying to be there for your husband or wife, uh, I, you can't, there's only so much you can do. Whereas I'm in a situation where I can focus full time on my husband and it was exhausting. I am exhausted. I'm not going to let him go. I'm going to be there for him because he's a good man and this illness, it's an illness he has. So I have to be there for him, but wow, it is, <laughs> it is hard. It is hard. And a lot of the time you you could think to yourself, well, I don't have to be in this situation. I could step away and leave my husband and just get on with life. But when they've been a good person and you know this is an illness and they have no control of what they're feeling, you want to be there for them. But you need a lot of care and you need to get help yourself through the whole journey because it's it's not a, it's. It's the most difficult thing to deal with someone's mental health. And my heart goes out to people every day that I know that is, is dealing with someone that's got mental health in their family. It's it's really it's incredibly hard. I don't wish on it. I don't wish anyone to have to go through it. But I think it's good that we, we do have a little bit of experience in it once maybe in your life, just for a little tiny bit of time so you understand what it's like for these people because it it hurts me when people say, oh, you know, you had such a beautiful life. You had everything you wanted. You travelled. You did this. You did that. He has a beautiful daughter. How could he do this to you? And I said, stop there. Stop because this is not a choice that they make that they, it's hard, it is the hardest thing to take your life. My husband used to tell me every day, I am gutless. I want to take my life, but I, it's too, it's very difficult to make that decision to do it. And it's not, they're not being selfish. They just, the pain, it's just excruciating. And how much pain can you let somebody go through before they know? They think in their mind, it's the best outcome for everybody. That's, that's the thing. That's the sadness. Um, and, of course, then we're left with the rest of our life without them. And it's, it's, very, pain, it's very painful for all of us. But deep down I when you know in my husband's situation that there wasn't anything else I could do for him currently and that this was the only outcome for him. And I, I really would love to think someone has the option to do something else and give that a go. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I know that, um, you know, my brother-in-law is an example who was, um, I mean, you've, you've, the, the degree of being a carer as you were, um, you know, sometimes if you did have a job, 
um, a, a job outside in some ways would have been um, good to compartmentalize. And my uh, brother-in-law, as an example, you know, was still working, you know, full-time, et cetera. And he still, she had taken a couple attempts, um, sadly. And even when he did finally enter life, um, she, sorry, he, my brother-in-law, um, you know, was like, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't save her. Um, you know, that feeling of deep um, sense of guilt, um, he certainly felt. And yet, from anyone's standpoint, and anyone listening to this, Vanessa, I know you um, were going to end um, soon. Um, the There would be no one that could say you could have done any anymore um and it i wonder if as you said the legacy of franco and also the legacy of the support um that you um bestowed um during that time um you know we have so much more to do in the um support system and the sense of continuity and con feeling of connectedness um when we have had family members that have done that, or if we're struggling ourselves. Um, and it sounds like um, having purpose in some of the um, the um, projects or um, initiatives that you have an interest in post um, Franco passing, including, you know, the work for with young people, um, because there aren't, I think, only cares like yourself in a way, um, and I would put my brother-in-law in this, um, and my husband, to be honest. Um, it is hard when you haven't had the mental uh, instability yourself to really understand the degree of illness that can, can you know, that is there. Um, and it's also okay for people to doubt that, because it's like, pull yourself up from your you know, pull your pants, you know, get yourself, get yourself going. Um, and there's an ignorance. Um, there's an ignorance around that. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Here's something that I will, um, hopefully with Lifeline and, um, I, I'm very, I think there needs, needs to be a lot said about the carers and what support that they need to get I you know that goes also with friends, you know that goes also with friends children um you know the statistics are really in some ways one in two people i have you know this is in some ways we need to normalize the um the prevalence um of this you know of it happening um obviously suicide itself is its own um you know, that is, of course, the pointy end because we want to prevent suicide. Psychedelic assisted therapy is literally trying to impact those statistics. But we also know that there's a lot of people suffering that aren't necessarily to that pointy end, but really have significant mental health um, challenges and the, the limited uh, resources, including pharmaceutical medication. And I'm one of those people who I am OK from having you know, electric shock at four years ago, and I still am um, 
you know, on pharmaceutical medication. But yes, there are the side effects. There's also um, a, la- a, a numbness, so to speak, of some of the um, normal expression of emotion. And so there are, you know, you've touched on so many different um, aspects and issues. I feel I could speak to you, you know, for all day, which I know you don't have. So I, you know, I hope this might be a continued conversation. Um, I think the um, last thing I guess I would like to relay to you is just, um, yeah, I hope you actually can feel very deeply the um, the essence of uh, Franco's, uh, the essence of what Franco uh, suffered that your role in uh, in that was less suffering for him. And, um, yeah. you know. And I think just, um, look, sharing it um, gives his life, like it, it makes it makes his life and his struggle to hold on. Um, and like all the more important that I just think there's a man who held on and did everything possible that this the current system um, threw at him and he never said no to any of it. And I just think if, if that story can be shared to show there's a man three years suicidal and willing to live day to day to just try to find a solution, um, think that sort of touched with the TGA because, you know, they have to understand that when so like there is a classic case here of someone who has tried everything and gone to every leading professor of their expertise, you know, in their field of expertise with mental health. Uh, why not give it a go? Yeah. Why not um, a- allow this therapy accessible to people like Franco, for now, uh, and I really do hope that it becomes mainstream and I do believe it will, but for now I just think it's wonderful that people like Franco, when they can show clearly that the current system's not working for them, that they can try this option before they have to go down and have 96 electric shock therapies because nothing in the system's working. That's just... It's absurd. And and I just think my husband's strength to do it and to say, okay, if this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. Um, I just want to give that. I'm so proud. I, I, I'm so proud of him every day when I think if his struggle can help others, that gives me a wonderful feeling of, like being so proud of him. And I say that to my daughter every day, your father's struggles to stay alive and sharing his story can help someone else to not lose their father or mother is a, is a tremendous, um, you need to be so tremendously proud of your dad that you know, he, his story can be shared, has been shared. And, and a face has been, like, to go to the TGA and present your story to them, and I'm I'm a face of just one person who's taken their life, you know, and the effect it has on me and my our families, it, it gives me a, 
a great sense of achievement and that all that time that I spent with him can be utilised to help others. That's really where I want. I see my life moving forward, um, working with that, advocating for change in our current system that we have. Well, um, you have um, certainly impacted um, so many people um, before the TGA changed, as well as um, individuals listening to you, your story. Um, I know that the reason, and because you are going now, hopefully, to some um, some appointment toward your own self-care in some way, maybe, um, Vanessa's in the car, literally, as we're still I am. talking. I am, actually. I'm just so, doing my annual checkup because... You know, being a sole parent, um, it's on my mind a lot that my health is very, my physical health um, is very important. Uh, So I I have my annual checkups and uh, the doctor's well aware of why I do what I I do now because I am a sole parent and I don't want my daughter, you know, she's only got myself. Well, um, yeah, Vanessa, thank you for actually just sharing that. That in itself, um, and I know people who are one uh, single parent, including my my um, my brother-in-law. Um, the feeling of um, uh, responsibility and the health of yourself and the self-care, being a sole parent, um, it has its own. You know, that has its own. Um, trajectory to make sure that you value one values um going to these appointments so i'm actually really um we're seeing real time action everybody um, advocating for self yes i'm i'm going i'm going to my self care appointment just to be yes to get my results which are all good but yes i just um yeah, it's all it's all good. I do it because I know I need to as a sole parent. Well, and lastly, as we close, I just wanted to say the reason of doing this series um, in particular, and you could tell by some of what my sharing was, is how important deeply listening to one another um, is, and the um, uh, and literally having a conversation. So, I mean, that is the um, that is the kind of hope of this series and I just um I just can't tell you enough how valuable um the time the last hour has been um and I hope it's a you know a continued conversation oh thank you so much for allowing me to share this story here I am in the medical center oh my gosh this is real time (laughs) podcast um at its best well Vanessa thank you we will um we will be in touch um and just a heartfelt thank you thank you so much deborah and thank you for sharing your story too all right speak to you soon thank you bye